So uh, this morning we have a representative from REST, one of the ministries that we support. REST is Real Escape from the Sex Trade. Um, and because of that, we're, we're going to be talking about some sensitive subjects today. Uh, and I know it's going to be brought up with caution and sensitivity, but we're going to deal with some of those issues directly. So I wanted to give fair warning for that, uh, particularly if you're at home and have kids that are watching. But uh, this is a ministry that we value and support. So I'd like to welcome up Josh Cuellar. Uh, he's the representative of REST, and he's going to be sharing with us this morning about what they do and... Uh, we're looking forward to it. So give Josh a warm greeting. Thank you, Pastor. So great to be here. Um, for those of you who are expecting Pastor James, my apologies in advance, um, but he will be back, and we're going to remember them on their trip. Thank you, uh, yeah, for allowing me to be here. Thank you for the kind of church that you are that was so welcoming uh, to me as I came in. As uh, Pastor Shannon mentioned, my name is Josh Cuellar. And I am the volunteer coordinator and church donor relations with REST. And so how I kind of got involved with REST was kind of a roundabout way. I used to be involved in church ministry, doing young adult stuff. And as it happens at the church, things got added onto that. So I did small groups and volunteer ministry. And so that being said, the local church is huge on my heart. I love what you guys are able to do. And it's... Um, awesome to be able to partner with you in this. And so for the last year and a half, I've been in this role, and I've learned a lot, and I hope to just kind of communicate some of what I've learned as well this morning. But before that, I just want to say thank you. You are a church that embodies living generously, and we and are able to benefit from that, but really pass on that benefit to the survivors we work with day in and day out. So first of all, thank you for your generosity as a church in giving to rest. It is no small thing. Our goal is to expand pathways of freedom, safety, and hope in order to end sex trafficking. And you, in large part, are helping us accomplish that. So thank you. And we get to serve 600-plus survivors every year because of it. So thank you. That is no small thing. There are three things I hope to kind of accomplish in our time here. The first thing is I want to cast a vision for God's heart for serving survivors of sex trafficking. Because if it's not part of God's heart, then we can kind of just dismiss it, right? But if it is, then we need to lean in and pay close attention to what he has to say about it. The second thing I hope to do is just kind of explain to you all, you may not be familiar with what we even do as an organization. Um, you may or may not know your church even supports rest. But let me explain a little bit about what we do in our time here. And lastly, paint a picture of how each and every one of us has a role to play. Northview as a church has a role to play, but each and every individual in here has a role to play in ending sex trafficking. So as we begin, I want us to kind of sit with this question up here. Who is my neighbor? Maybe you've thought of this before, and maybe you even know where we're going with this. But this question, who is my neighbor, has great ramifications for how we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And as beginning in the 1920s, there was an addition to our homes, particularly in suburban America, that kind of altered the way we interact with those around us. Any guesses what it might be? The attached garage. 
I might, might not have been what you were thinking, but <laughs> the attached garage in the 1920s and really getting birthed out of the, what we call the baby boom generation, folks are leaving the cities and moving to the suburbs, much like where you and I live here in the Bothell Mill Creek area. And cars became more and more popular, having to get further places and farther away, and people were having more babies, and so families got larger, and you needed a place to cart those babies around, and so cars became more and more popular. With it, however, also came a shift in what some social scientists realized in the way that we interact with our neighbors. Because you could now then go from inside your house, into your car, go to your place of work, drop the kids off at school, go to work out, come back to your garage, and never see those around you. It affected the way we viewed our neighbors. And it's been noted that uh, by different church leaders and social scientists that we are in an age of loneliness, if you don't know this. And I'm not saying that garages cause this. You could look at a lot of different things, right? Social media use, the divisiveness in our country, whatever. So I am no way trying to overstate. And if you have a garage, don't feel bad. That's an okay thing. <laughs> like Pastor James, Josh told us don't have garages. That's weird. But... It's important to note that this is part, I believe, of the symptom of a larger issue of where we as human beings, myself included, and all of us have a bent, a natural desire to insulate and isolate ourselves from other people. And so this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it's very old. And in our scripture passage today, we're going to see someone who wants, who is desiring to justify himself in his isolation and insulation of, from others. And this is just not something we as a church, um, speaking as one of you, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and so this is not something we as a church can do. In fact, in Jesus' words, the world will know that we are followers of Christ, not by our true doctrine, even though doctrine is very important. The world will not know we are followers of Christ by the church we attend, although the church you attend and the practices are very important. According to John 13, the world will know that you are my disciples, in the words of Jesus, by the way that you love one another. So we can't afford to get this wrong. And if our bent naturally is towards self-justification and insulation and isolation, as it was with this young scribe in the first century, then we need Jesus to disciple us away from that, to reform our mind, to transform our minds away from that. As I mentioned, this scribe was seeking to be justified in his own actions. And we can, if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, um, whatever you use, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 10, which is where we're going to be. We're going to take a look at this story and how it is related to those serving those involved in the sex trade. So you may or may not be familiar with this story, depending on how long you've been around the church. Um, for many of us here, I imagine that this is kind of just going to be a reiteration or a reworking of it. So it kind of goes as this. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I would encourage you to read it at some point today. Um, but for time's sake, we're just going to kind of highlight a couple things. So this scribe, he comes to Jesus and he asks him a very important question, right? First of all, though, let's back up because he says teacher. And I think that's an important distinction because this guy in the honor-shame culture that he's a part of 
has some deference towards Jesus. He recognized him as a great teacher, as a great rabbi. And so he comes and says, teacher. And then he asks such a great question. This question is like the question for all of humanity, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's like the question behind all of our other questions. It oftentimes gets kind of played out in our modern era as, what's the good life? How can I get it? Is there more beyond what I'm able to see? So this scribe, recognizing Jesus as a great teacher, and he is a great teacher, but he's also so much more than that, says, what does the law say? As only Jesus can do. Jesus is so good at answering questions with other probing questions that really get to the heart of where people are. Jesus asks the scribe, what does the law say? What do the scriptures teach you? And this is a scribe. This is an expert in the law, and so he knows the scriptures. He knows his stuff. This would be like maybe asking a seminary professor, what does the scriptures say? And maybe he had heard Jesus teach it before, or maybe he had read it in what we consider our Old Testament scriptures. But he gives a great answer. He says, to inherit eternal life, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This first part, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, comes from the Jewish Shema that they would repeat often throughout the day. And that second part was part of Jesus' core message, that if we're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's going to mean loving your neighbor as yourself. There's another passage where someone asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And he says this, love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. I love that because Jesus is giving him a great deal. It's that great two for one. The guy asks for the greatest commandment and Jesus is like, here, here's a two for one. And so he answers correctly. I think that's kind of awesome. Maybe how many of us would answer this correctly. His doctrine was orthodox to the teachings of Jesus. But as Jesus can only do in our lives, he's going to get again to the heart of the matter. And the writer of Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kind of peels back the curtain into the inner life of this young scribe. And he says, Jesus, this is Jesus now asking, oh sorry, this is the scribe now asking, who is my neighbor? And Luke, writing this account, says he asked this to justify himself. So if we could for a second use our spiritual imaginations and think that more likely than not, knowing just the human condition and knowing myself, we can kind of imagine that there was somebody in his mind's eye that he was thinking of when he asked this question. And he wanted to justify himself and his comfortableness in excluding that person as somebody that he should love. And I would kind of even venture to say, based on the parable that Jesus was saying, that this person or this group of people was Samaritans. Jesus will then go on to tell the story of the parable of Samaritans. And I believe in part to kind of deconstruct this man's beliefs, those wrong beliefs of who his neighbor was. And so Jesus tells the parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. It's 
ubiquitous everywhere. We have hospitals in my hometown in New Mexico. There's a nursing home called Good Samaritan. And there's just, it's everywhere, right? We use it as kind of a, a fill-in for someone who treats his neighbor well. And it's because of this parable that Jesus tells. And if you're unfamiliar, we'll just go through it real quick. The man going down from Jerusalem, so he would go down into a literal valley passing from Jerusalem to another city. It was an infamous place for danger, and it was well known. And in this story, this man going down was attacked by some robbers. He was stripped of his clothes. He was beaten and left for dead. Seemingly, this man probably thought his life was over, that this was it. And as he's holding on his breath, each breath in and out, laborious, he sees a man coming and walking towards him. And this man, maybe he thought was part of that group of robbers that was coming to finish the job. And as he got a little closer, he realizes that, no, this isn't part of the robbers. This is someone else. This is someone maybe I know from Jerusalem. This is a priest. I'm saved Thank goodness, this is it. But what does the priest do? He passes by him, steps over him. And maybe the priest, we don't know, again, using our spiritual imaginations, had good intentions. He didn't want to be ritually unclean. If What we know from Jewish life is if you touched a dead body, you were considered ritually unclean for Jewish worship. So maybe that was his motivation. Maybe it wasn't, so to speak, good-hearted. We don't know. But he still passed him. And that man in that moment must have felt really low and hopeless, I imagine. Until he sees another person coming by, and that hope rises again. Maybe this guy will save me, and it's a Levite, and he also passes. Lastly, a third person comes, and I imagine that the man from Jerusalem at this point is just like, I don't even know what's going to happen, but I know this guy's not going to help me. And as he got closer, um, maybe he even realized that he was a Samaritan. And at that point, he's like, okay, well, this guy's really just going to finish the job. But we're familiar with the story, and the Samaritan instead picks him up. He binds his wounds, carries him to the town that they were headed, takes him to an inn, a place where he can find rest and healing, pays for that in advance, and says to the innkeeper, take care of this man and any needs he has. So this is a subversive message of Jesus that is kind of hitting at this Jewish scribe's preconceived notions of who neighbor is. And Jesus again asks a pointed question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law reluctantly, I believe, because he doesn't even name him, says the one who had mercy on him. Jesus, with a simple but difficult-to-live-out command, says, go and do likewise. And that ends the parable, and in a short couple of paragraphs, Jesus dismantles the man's quest for self-justification and our quest for self-justification that we can be on as well. I think having heard that, it's easy for us to see ourselves as like um, not getting this correctly. And I want to encourage you again that you are a church that are full of good Samaritans. So thank you. But I do know humanity and I know my own heart and bent towards not including those 
in my neighbor, my view of neighbor, that need to be. I know, uh, and I chose this passage as I was praying, not because I don't think you are doing this or that you're failing in some kind of way, but because we all have this drift towards isolation and insulation we need to be aware of. And the pernicious nature of that drift is that it's unknowable to us unless it's pointed out often. So, let's not figuratively get in our cars, in our garages, drive home, or drive to school work, and then drive back home without considering this question, who is my neighbor? Who, do, who does God want us to show mercy on, to show love on? And I believe part of this teaching from the scriptures is that it's those that I don't naturally think of first, those outside of my natural circles and communities. The suffering and the vulnerable in our communities is who I think Christ is highlighting in this. And again, you all exemplify this very well. A Christian community who cares and who embodies this kind of mercy shown, not just in your financial gifts, but in your life and word. So thank you for that. Ten years, Northview has been a partner of rest. That's amazing. That's no small thing. There are kids in your church who weren't even alive when you started being a partner, and I think that's amazing. So I want to encourage you and continue to do that. And now, as a point of transition, I'd like to just talk a little bit about how we at rest do this. How do we show mercy and compassion to survivors of the sex trade? I will note, as Pastor Shannon did, that, that this topic can be heavy. Some of us may have experienced abuse in our life or may have even been trafficked ourselves. We may know people who have been trafficked or abused. And so I just want to encourage you to allow the Spirit to minister to you in whatever way that might look like. Needing to step out is totally okay with me. But we're going to lean into this as Christians who want to be good neighbors. So REST was founded in 2009. So we're about to celebrate our 15-year anniversary as an organization when a group of women in the Seattle area just got together. They were, they're believers, and they just saw a need to serve survivors of sex trafficking. 2009 was before um, a lot of public opinion had been shaped about this. Um, there wasn't a lot of organizations doing this work, and so they didn't know what to do. There wasn't a rest that they could go volunteer with or give to, and so they just started going on Aurora Avenue in Seattle. And if you know anything about Aurora Avenue, that's a faint famous uh, track where sex is sold day in and day out. And they just started listening to the women that they were there and were seeking to be good neighbors. They listened well and found quickly that the services that were offered just were not offered to this population. There was no one doing the work that was necessary. And so through prayer and consideration and listening well and collaborating with survivors of sex trafficking, rest was developed. And some 15 years later, we are honored now to be one of the largest nonprofits of its kind in the country by caseload. We've gained a wealth of experience and knowledge, a lot of it coming from listening to clients' experience. And through that listening well, we've developed a continuum of services that really seeks to meet survivors wherever they are on their journey towards freedom, safety, and hope. 
And so in this next slide, I um, want to share a little bit about, if we could go to the next slide, thank you. We're going to watch this video real quick. Sex trafficking can be a 13-year-old girl being groomed for sex work by someone she met online who she thinks she can trust. An adult struggling with addiction who traffics their child for money. An immigrant whose documents are kept until debts are paid off through sex work in an illicit massage business. A young woman's boyfriend who manipulates her into selling her body. Sex trafficking is an exchange of sex for anything of value, such as money, food, and shelter, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion, or when the victim is a minor. Traffickers prey on the vulnerable. Poverty, child abuse, racial disparities, substance use, mental illness, developmental delays, gender and sexual minorities, or simply anyone looking for love or acceptance are all factors that increase a person's vulnerability. And this isn't something that's only happening in other countries. Thousands of people are trafficked in every community around the U.S. every day. Once victims are trafficked, they suffer immensely. One study in the United States says that 86% of women were subjected to physical violence, sexual assault, and other forms of violence while in the sex trade. Traffickers may use violence toward the victim and their loved ones. Abusers alternate between affection and violence to manipulate their victims into thinking they're loved and that it's their choice to stay. Victims find it hard to leave because they think this is love. Shame keeps them stuck and makes it difficult for them to receive help. If they do find the strength to leave, they struggle to find other opportunities. Studies show that over 90% of women engaged in the sex trade would leave if they thought they had another option. Each year, rest opens doors to other opportunities for hundreds of victims and survivors, offering pathways to freedom, safety, and hope. Everyone deserves to be loved. Everyone deserves a life free from exploitation. Thank you. That was just like a quick little intro video to rest in this conversation. Here you'll find our mission statement, the driving force in how we're loving our neighbors as an organization. And the whole reason we exist is to expand pathways of freedom, safety, and hope to end sex trafficking. And as you can see, there's a multiplicity of barriers that may uh, keep someone in the sex trade. But note, as the video said, 90% of women involved in the sex trade would want a way out if they thought that their basic needs could be met. So we at REST want to create those easy off-ramps into the sex trade. So on the next slide, we talk about our continuum of care. And you can see someone coming in at an entry point can go into stabilization and independence. These include our programs. And again, these programs were kind of birthed out of listening to survivors well and what they really need. And so we design our programs not so that the client can fit into the program, but so that we develop the programs around what clients need. So these include things like our outreach, our 24-7 hotline, moving all the way to stabilization and then independence. I'll also note that we have a training and consultation arm that we launched this month that is really awesome. We have 
33 participants from all over the country kind of learning the REST model and gaining from the expertise that we've been able to gain over the years and so multiplying our efforts across the country. When clients are sometimes asked what was the last thing, the situation around the last time they traded sex, it's oftentimes for a basic need to be met. So it could be a place to stay. It could mean um, something as kind of simple as a place to shower. And so we take that into consideration when we're developing our programs. How can we help meet basic needs and then also get to a point of stabilization for the individual? So. We at REST consistently serve 600 to 700 individuals. So we were able to engage 643 individuals last year alone, which is amazing. Thank you again for your partnership in that. That is no small thing. I would love to just, uh, yeah, thank God for that and thank you. That is amazing. But when we consider that there are an estimated 1,000 women in King County alone being sold for sex every night, that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. We, last year, I mentioned 643 individuals engaged with REST. 305 were enrolled in services. Another cool thing, though, that we were able to do as an organization was provide 3,815 nights of safety in our shelter. We often get asked, and one of the things we really like to do in these types of presentations is talk about who are trafficking survivors, who are those involved in the sex trade. Because oftentimes our perception of this is shaped not by reality, but shaped instead by news media and popular TV and movies, and those don't always paint a clear picture. So in this next slide, here's a breakdown of some of the demographics of our clients. You can see on the left here, here's a breakdown of clients by gender. And on the right here, here's a breakdown of our clients by race. There's a couple things to really note and to understand that on the left here, that big slice of pie, 82.29% are female. So this is a thing that disproportionately affects women. And, and we may know that. But there is a slice of the pie, 12.15% of our clients are male. And so this is one of those myths that often gets perpetuated, that it's just women. And it is predominantly women, and we need to acknowledge that it's a disproportionate amount and the dynamics that go into that, but that it is also men and boys being trafficked. A couple other things to note, that on this side we see 33% of our clients identify as African-American. And across the board, any studies we have show that this is um, true of King County and surrounding counties, that a disproportionate amount of those affected by sex trafficking are black and African-American. And so there are a myriad of num reasons why that would be, but when we look at the fact, the statistic that predominantly those sex buyers are white uh, middle-class men. We can also see some of the racial dynamics there as well. 
One client who uh, is, happens to be African-American said she always believed that white men who purchased her for sex did so because she did not look like their daughters. So a couple of things that make rest a worthwhile cause to get behind are our principles of care. And so this is one of the things that make us unique as an organization. We are relationship-based, meaning we want to get to know the individual, form a relationship. It's said that it's often a harmful relationship that gets someone involved in trafficking in the, place, in the first place, and it is more often than not a healthy model relationship that is going to be the off-ramp. We are also seeking to be trauma-informed in our care. There is a larger rate of sex trafficking survivors who experience post-traumatic stress disorder than many other um, communities that also experience PTSD, including those uh, in the Vietnam War veteran category. And that's not to diminish armed service at all, but to highlight that those involved in sex trafficking are experiencing high levels of trauma. We want to be strengths-based. We see these amazing strengths in survivors, things like courage and tenacity, and just these survival skills that get an individual to this point where they're able even to connect to rest in the first place. And we want to honor that and bring that to the service. Relationship-based also means we're going to offer individualized services. We want to promote self-determination and empowerment and holistic care. We want to not only look at the emotional health, the physical health, the mental health, but also the spiritual health of survivors, realizing that all of those things are necessary to continue on the path of freedom, safety, and hope. So I wanted to quickly run through an overview of our services because this is really cool. So on this next slide, you can see even some pictures of outreach happening in offering some warm drinks and a listening ear on the track in Aurora. We have a text outreach arm that texts um, folks who are advertising sex online and says, hey, this is so-and-so. I used to be in the life. I got involved with rest, and this is how you can get connected as well if you're interested. We have a hotline. Sometimes people ask, I don't know how to get involved. You can take down the hotline number and um, pass it along to especially, particularly those in you who might be in the medical field or working with general populations who may or may not be trafficked. You can just offer that as a resource. Our hotline works more like kind of a warm line in offering emotional support and in a referral service to other services. On this next slide, you'll see kind of that holistic care that we're looking to provide. Behavioral health things such as mental health, wellness coaching, individual groups, sessions, um, Bible study mentorship, prayer groups, if that's what the survivor wants. On the next slide, you'll see our emergency receiving center, which is our emergency shelter. It has seven beds. It houses um, 18 years and older clients and residents. This is one of our only gender-specific programs, and that's because it becomes really important to keep this a place of safety for healing. So each individual has a room where they can go in and a door that locks, and they're able to stay up to 90 days and at least 30 days. 
And as they're there, they're meeting with advocates and learning about what next steps may be. Our rest houses, we have one in North Seattle, one in South Seattle. They're independent transitional houses, total of 11 beds. Both genders are able to reside there and stay up for one year as they look for more stability and meeting their goals in their life. As part of that, we have intensive case management as well where they're able to meet with some of our staff and through motivational interviewing and active listening really just kind of learn what their desires and goals are. They're able to meet for up to a year, discovering strengths, needs, and culture. As part of our holistic care, we wanna empower, um, economically empower survivors. This is through the Safe Jobs Collaborative, this is through employment skills training and the like. And on the next slide, we'll see our permanent housing services. And this is, of course, transitioning out of the transition of um, transitional housing, rather, and into more permanent housing. And this looks like advocacy, access to financial assistance in the short term, long term, in a gradual, subsidized way, and tenant education. And all of this is great, um, but disconnected possibly from real life people. And so I wanted to share a quick story and I want you to meet a little bit of Brooklyn's story. So this is written about Brooklyn. Her dad was a pimp and her mom a prostitute. When she found rest, she was in a especially vulnerable situation. She was a single mom of two with no steady income or childcare. And this is her own words. I was relying on this trick, which is a man who purchases sex. He was so cruel but I didn't have many options. He was like, what else are you going to do? He knew how much I needed him, and he was paying all of my bills. My daughter's dad wasn't paying anything, and it was degrading. I felt low. Brooklyn said that rest immediately made all the difference by connecting her to housing resources and affordable housing. We were also able to help with some financial aid resources for Brooklyn to continue her education, because that was one of her goals and support with some mental health therapies on our journey. And so you, by supporting REST, were able to play a part in her journey. As I mentioned before, I uh, truly see a room full of good Samaritans. And so these are folks who really do care and want to be in this journey. And maybe you have had the Holy Spirit working in your life for some time now, considering what that may be. And I wanted to leave you real quick with some very specific ways you can get involved. This is above and beyond what you already do. So on this next slide, you can partner with us in raising awareness. You can follow us on social media and find those things to post. You can sign up for our newsletter in the lobby. I have a table set up and we can get that going. You, can, you did invite us to speak at your church. Thank you. If you have a place of business or small group that you would like to just engage further in this conversation, invite us. One of the things we're trying to do is start book clubs around um, just sex trafficking and raising awareness in that way. Prayer uh, meetings focused on praying for survivors and the staff at rest. So these are all ways you can help raise awareness. You can watch a documentary, read a book. Um, giving, investing just a seemingly small amount, like $10. Like, I don't even know the last time I ate out of my house for less than $10, right? So we're talking one meal out a month can make a huge difference in the lives 
of those. And so again, above and beyond, because thank you for what you are already doing. We're looking for partners to join us monthly um, because that is just a helpful way to contribute and get involved. But we just don't want people to donate financially. We want people to get involved with boots on the ground in volunteering. You can volunteer in direct service in some of our programs, in being that listening ear and warm face, in being that neighbor and connecting. You can um, attend our trainings and raise more awareness in your own life. And so, if you have any questions or comments, I've got my email up there, but I'll also be in the lobby after the service um, and just encourage you. The first step would be to know Jesus yourself. Be with him. Consider how do we be a neighbor to those around us because the whole point is to love God and love those around us. I'll pray for us real quick. God, I thank you for this time together that you are here with us now that you care about us, that you care about survivors of sex trafficking. God, I ask that you would please just shape our hearts and minds to align to your will about this thing. If anything said was untrue, just do away with it. If anything was said true in your scriptures, just let it sink deeply into our lives and change us. We need your help in this, Holy Spirit, and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate your words. Um, I, I love that story of the Good Samaritan. Um, it's one that we've talked about a number of times, but uh, uh, not to guilt us or anything like that, but um, we don't want to be those people that pass by on the other side and um, see the issue and assume somebody else is going to take care of it. So at Northview, you're already participating in REST. Um, the money that you give in offerings goes, 10% of that goes towards ministries that we support like REST, uh, both locally, regionally, and even overseas. Um, so you're already participating in that, and it's neat to be able to have that partnership with you guys. Um, but like Josh said, I would challenge us um, ponder these things, pray over this, and see where the Holy Spirit is asking us to maybe engage to a, uh, a greater level. Um, and those are some great points that we can have, and I would love to see, uh, Suzanne, if we could pop those back up after service, um, but uh, come talk to Josh afterwards, too, and find out ways that you might be able to invest further in that. Um, we're all touched by these issues in some way, and um, we don't want to deny that they exist or just let somebody else take care of them. So I'd encourage us that way. See where the Holy Spirit is prompting you. Um, let's not let rest just be a sticker on our missions wall, uh, but be something that we engage with on a regular basis. So appreciate your, your investment in us as much as we invest in you. So thank you, Josh. Let's give him a